0: Hello, this is John Bwerie and welcome to another episode of Community Intelligence, where we explore how leaders engage and build community. Joining me for this episode is Salida Reynolds, General Manager of the Los Angeles Department of Transportation, who is innovating approaches to designing local mobility solutions. We met at Home State's Sidewalk Patio on Hollywood Boulevard, where Salida and LADOT used creative interventions to make a safer and more efficient corridor in the East Hollywood community. We discuss the way she incorporates a community's needs and insights into her process and the impact her approach is having. So, so how do you start, you came to a new place and you said, okay, I need to understand some some things that I'm hearing, I need to understand more about why. When you look at a community, a neighborhood, you know, we're, we're sitting here in the East Hollywood, Los Feliz area of Los Angeles, uh, and we're seeing tons of people walk by, and how do you choose who the people are you talk to to get this information? You sent a team of people out to do interviews. Did they go to people who are already actively engaged? Yeah. Did they go door to door? Or do you actually look at a hierarchy in a neighborhood?
1: Well, I think this is really the fundamental challenge with um, in doing the, this community outreach work is who is the community, right? right? So when I, um, I did a project uh, several years ago, before I came to Los Angeles with the American Institute of Architects, mm-hmm. They assemble groups of experts and they go into cities and they uh, work with that city for a compressed period of time and, you know, sort of a 24-hour work to understand a community and then tell that community, here's what we observed and here's what we think. And uh, my uncle Aaron, who is a professor at Ole Miss uh, Law School for many, many years, happened to be in Oxford, Mississippi when I was there on this one particular project. And he came up to me afterwards and he was just livid and he's one of these people who's one of the people that I admire most in the world. And he said, you know what, Salita, the community never says a damn thing. It's all about the individuals who show up and you need to be thoughtful about that, who you listen to. And when you get up on a stage and say the community said something, that that is almost impossible. You have to, you should be specific in order to be transparent. And you know that's been several years ago now, but it's always stuck with me as the fundamental challenge of doing outreach. The model that we have of having a, a, a community meeting on a weekday evening at a you know a, a church basement, a, a library, a whatever, pick your civic space, uh, where there's a, a project manager who gets up and presents a PowerPoint. <laughs> And then people are allowed to, you know, ask questions or there's a microphone. That is just a fundamentally broken way of doing business. And I abolished those kinds Great. of community meetings when I got to LADOT. And but I still, because it's such, it's so, in, it's such a muscle memory of the way we do outreach in government mm-hmm. that I constantly have to push back on elected neighborhoods who want that style. Well, you're going to come to a meeting and we're going to, there's going to be a the microphone. microphone. And when I was in San Francisco and I, I made this choice and decided this was just no longer working, we had a community meeting up in the North Beach um, neighborhood of San Francisco, which is a historic Italian-American neighborhood. We were up there to talk about uh, putting in um, curb extensions and there was no microphone. And there were a couple of folks who were so enraged that there was no microphone that they got up on a table and just started yelling. Wow. Because. People have figured out how to game that particular system. They understand that if they can show up and they can control that microphone, especially if there's an elected official there or a decision maker, it will have a chilling effect on anybody's willingness to make change because the meeting will follow the emotion in the room. And if the primary emotion in the room is anger, you can never get to, everybody leaves that meeting unhappy. The people who showed up to actually learn something leave unhappy and they leave angry and they don't even know why they're angry. Why am I so angry? I didn't show up angry, why am I so angry? The the, the city staff leave that meeting feeling, they got nothing, right? So then your question is, so then what, right? So how do you do it? And the answer is that you have to, there's, there's just no replacement for an extremely labor-intensive, focused, sustained effort in a community and furthermore there's a few essential rules to doing that you you have to go meet people where they are you have to go to their standing meetings you have to hold an open house on a saturday morning that lasts five hours that has daycare you have to sit in the middle of a sidewalk with a card table and 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 you know soccer balls and and like lure kids to come play with the soccer balls and then ask their parents what they think about things you have to go to the farmers market you have to do that and you have to do that over and over again. You have to show up on a Wednesday morning and, and get to know the guy who owns the coffee shop. You have to do all of those things um, and it still won't be enough. And those are, those are really, the, the rules are, one, you'll never be the expert. You, uh, you can be the technical expert, but you can't be the community expert. So don't ever try and tell a community something about itself uh, without, before you get to know them and earn their trust. Um, Two, you always have to have a neutral convener. The project manager, the community knows that the project manager has an agenda when they show up and that agenda is to deliver that project because they've probably gone out and gotten a grant or who knows what. So you have to have a neutral facilitator. Um, Three, you need a champion in the community who can be your guide. Um, and help you sort of navigate uh, all of the different dynamics that are at play in a given community. And four, you got to be honest with the community from the very beginning about what is on and off the table for negotiation. If, if the project is a, a transit only lane because you went out and got money from the state to put in a transit only lane, then no matter what the community says, or no matter, you go nine times out of 10, the community's been asking for other things for many years, and you probably not showing up to deliver the things that they've asked for. So you should, but you have to be honest with them. There, this project has to have a transit only lane when I'm done. We can talk about all kinds of other things. There's other, you know, things that you want that we can maybe add to this. There's trade-offs, there's, there's things we can discuss, but at the end of the day, this thing right here is non-negotiable. Because what often happens is that um, planners will go into community and say, oh, I'm here to do a, a, you know, a charrette process and we're gonna design the street of your dreams, and, you know, and then you get to the end of it and, and the community can see, oh, well, you all along, you, all you, wanted you, you wanted this, right? So you gotta be an honest broker if you want to build that credibility.
0: What uh, what's some of the most innovative approaches to engagement that you've seen or participated in? The opposite of the standing on a table with a microphone.
1: <laughs>
0: what's been an interesting intervention that's been used to like really activate? I heard you mention like a card table on the sidewalk, cool, right. interesting. Simple, you know? doesn't have to yeah. cost a lot of money. Right.
1: Um, the other two other things that we that I've observed or that I've been playing around with here um, that have been I think really meaningful, one one of which One idea came out of, actually, the former CAO, Miguel Santana. Um, I was talking with him about this challenge. And Miguel is somebody who cares a lot about the city and cares a lot about um, how we get things done, understands that there's a need for change, but also understands that we we live in a competitive capitalist society. This is not Northern Europe. We cannot do top-down kinds of changes. Um, The community's got to, the folks got to come along with us. And he said, well, why don't you do this? Why don't you, instead of going out into a community and saying, hey, I'm here to implement the the mobility plan that the city council passed, and it says that I have to have a dedicated bike lane here. Why don't you instead say, hey, how about let's open a call for communities to tell us what they want and how how they would design their streets differently. It doesn't have to be expensive. Let's just do a small seed fund and... Let's see what we get. And and they, their their ideas must conform to the mobility plan and Vision Zero, right? It, it can't be something that's like, oh, well, I want you to deck the 405 right. or something. It has to be consistent with, with the policy framework. Um, and so we did that. The first year we did that in partnership with the mayor's Great Street Studio. Uh, it was called the Great Streets Challenge. And we got some of the most exuberantly creative, exciting ideas, and we started small by just doing a day-long intervention, right? So we're gonna use temporary materials, chalk, planters, cones, traffic officers who direct traffic for just a day. Um, And my favorite, there were seven projects that came out of that in all across the city, in all different parts of the city. Two takeaways from that were number one, I was worried that we were going to see, like we do in traffic, typically in a traffic calming program, which is another application driven program, wealthier parts of the city will oversubscribe and you'll see speed humps that are all in wealthier neighborhoods and lower income neighborhoods won't access because they don't trust the system and they, um, they've they got their minds on other things. Uh, and so, and they do not they don't think anybody cares, right? When they can find more cannabis stores and grocery stores in a three block radius, why would they think that? the city is there to do anything for them so um, but but for the great streets challenge we got uh, way more applications from low-income neighborhoods and in fact the largest number of applications came from Boyle Heights but we also had applications from Panorama City and from uh, Pacoima and from South LA traditionally
0: lower-income communities lower engaged communities
1: yeah, and I think part of that was due to the fact that the Great Street, the people in the Great Street Studio had did they did the work, they did focused work to make connections to organizers in those communities, um, to alert them to the opportunity. My second hypothesis, nickel theory, is that um, the the groups in those neighborhoods were more open to change. They were more willing to take risks uh, because the problems they confront are. Uh, much more intense right if you not to diminish the, the challenges of folks in uh, high-income neighborhoods there's challenges all over but you know people driving 35 miles an hour down your residential street in Westwood is different than you know uh, somebody getting killed on foot once a month in South LA right and so there's uh, the, the projects that came out of that effort were great and then we in the second round made it into a, a, pro, um, a program that had more permanent kind of installations. Um, and at the same time, we have other application-driven programs, uh, Play Streets, People Streets, um, that we've seen kind of we've, we've um, incubated and grown those. And so that's one creative way to try and engage a community is, is to actually say, hey, I have some money. Here's the policy framework why don't y'all get together and tell me how you would, what you would do to solve this problem. I will make my technical staff available to do what they do best, which is to say, no, I'm sorry, you cannot do a giant, um, you know, sculpture in the middle of the road, but yes, we can do something more creative with the way that the crosswalk is is marked, right, Um, to try and get to yes. Um, I think that there's been some interesting work done around uh, partnerships with, um, artists, health and wellness organizations, and others, uh, other other community-based organizations that we've found success with uh, partnering with them.
0: Indicating, of course, you're a you're a transportation agency. Yep. And now you're finding, maybe unusual partners. Yes. In artists that traditionally aren't part of the transportation conversation. Yes.
1: Yeah. So we took our we took a, for Vision Zero, which is our goal to get to zero traffic deaths. Um, we put out a call for artists and community-based organizations to adopt some cor- certain corridors in the city and do education and outreach in those corridors and do installations. And so to try and raise awareness and spark a conversation because safety and, and that culture shift um, is about storytelling and is about getting people to see their, their community a little bit differently. And we can't be the messengers. Government just cannot, people don't trust government right now. To put it lightly, uh, and and we can't be the messengers, and that's okay, right? It, it it is more powerful, and we get more interesting and creative results when I have you know an a, a organization like La Moss out on a, a neighborhood corridor doing the work the way they do the work and how they do the work. That infusion of you know genuine and authentic community outreach with great design. And elevated, you know, installations and quality of, of the their art that architectural brain that they bring to it, um, it's a it's a it's an outcome that we never could have envisioned on our own, and that's fine, right? That's actually a really good thing.
0: And do you think L.A. Uh, you're here in Los Angeles, is L, and you're only here in the city of L.A., right? We're uh-huh. we're one of 88 cities in a county yep. in a region of 100 uh, yep. 200 jurisdictions is this the place to do it or is this, is this if you do it you, know, you can make it here you can make it anywhere well that's that's new york but you know <laughs>
1: <laughs> but it, well it is true in many ways though because in los angeles you have just about every type of of neighborhood that you could think of right from all the way from uh in rural i mean if you're up in Somar and and the sort of far reaches of the city uh, to some of the highest density west of manhattan in koreatown so it, it, no matter what you want to work on, you can work on it here, um, but it doesn't change those kind of immutable facts that you have to have partners in the community, you have to approach the community with respect. Government needs to be also be respected and technical experts need to gain respect, uh, but they also need to be in their right spot, right? All of these things are true no matter where you're working. I was at a... Um, press conference up in uh, Council District 7 with council member uh, Rodriguez, Monica Rodriguez. Uh, She's an incredible leader on transportation and a whole bunch of issues. She's been doing amazing things for that community. In the
0: Northeast Valley, San Fernando Valley? Yep,
1: Northeast San Fernando Valley. So we're in Sylmar and we're on a street where we've uh, was a really fast street. There was a a guy riding his bike. He was a, a lifetime cyclist got hit from behind by a car, was in a coma for several days, woke up. The first thing he said, he was talking with his wife was, how do we make sure this never happens to anyone else? And so with him as as sort of a, a, with a strong political leader, with this really powerful humanizing testimony and approaching the community with respect and really empowering them to come to the table, we came up with this beautiful project that is a a conversion where the street went from uh, four really fast lanes, people were getting up to 50, 55 miles an hour on this street, that is in a residential neighborhood, uh, down to a, um, a, a more reasonable number of lanes for the amount of traffic so that the speeds could come down. People can still make it through there with plenty of time. But you had this street that was parallel to a freeway where people could go really fast and so they are. Um, and we had this great project, a great event, a great press event. People who were at the, the event came up to me and said, this was just the best community outreach that we've ever seen. And part of that is because Monica insisted upon it because she held the bar really high. But part of it is that we were bringing these lessons into practice. So you can do it anywhere. It doesn't have to be in, in you know, it, it it can it and if you can solve it and really get your, it into the systems and the way that you do projects, um, it can work, it can work anywhere. But until people are willing to sort of take a, that first risk to say, okay, Salida, I believe you, we don't have to have this microphone and these PowerPoints, <laughs> and we're not gonna do it on a Wednesday night. And, um, you know, they, They, you'll never, you'll never get to show them a different model and then when they see the model they're like, oh, I'm not talking about rocket science, I'm just talking about an open house.
0: So as we look at the future of mobility transportation, what's the role of tunnels and gondolas in this city?
1: Uh Well, you know, way back in my career when I was just a wee transportation plan engineer, I was a consultant, and I was working on a project in Alameda Point in the Bay Area, which is a former naval air station that glows in the dark at night because it's where the Navy used to strip the paints off of paint off of their planes. Um, it's extremely toxic land uh, that they've been cleaning up gradually over many many years since the, um, all the ba- many of the bases got um, sh- mothballed in the 90s under the Clinton administration, and uh, this should, by all accounts, be a place with a ton of housing, a ton of commercial development, a ton of retail. It's in the, right in the heart of the Bay Area. It is right across from, this, from Oakland, from Jack London Square. You can see San Francisco clearly across the Bay. Uh, and there, was, there were these, but the only way on and off, it was like, I used to say if it was a nightclub, it would be like the fire commissioner's worst nightmare because there were only one way on and one way off the island, the Webster and Posey tubes, which were these tiny, very ancient, tunnels that tunneled underneath the Oakland estuary that connected you to the freeway. There was, nobody had the money or the appetite to either retrofit those tunnels or expand those tunnels. Um, there were ferries, which was good, but that wasn't gonna be enough to move the, the volume of people. But there you could see the West Oakland BART station right across the estuary. And so we proposed an aerial gondola because it could move you know, the, the volume of people we needed to move. And uh, I went around and looked at others. I looked at Roosevelt, the one that serves Roosevelt Island in New York. Um, I had people who, you know, are specialists in aerial tramways and gondolas around the world. There aren't very many of them. Great. Come and talk to me. Um, And at the time, Portland, the city of Portland was also contemplating a tramway to serve a new medical center that was going to be up on a hill uh, that, you know, to get up to it, you you had to wind through all these tiny little neighborhood streets in this residential area. And it's a huge employment center and obviously medical center. And so they were pursuing it too. So we were both, you had this moment in time where these two American cities on the west coast are looking at this really novel, innovative transportation solution. Um, it tur- as it turned out, that particular developer uh, came and went, and the, the gondola never got off the ground in Alameda, um, but Portland built theirs. And I've been in, and used it many times, and it is this really uh, fantastic project. There's a huge bike station at the base. You ride your bike up, it's always full, um, and it carries you up to the, to the medical center, and it's this beautiful experience that actually adds joy to the process of going from A to B, which we don't often do enough of in transportation. There's not enough fun in in transportation planning, and uh, and so when I heard about the tramways being proposed here at Dodger Stadium and also um, to the Hollywood Sign and, and uh, you know others, I just thought, yeah, of course, why not? Because we don't we don't do enough to um, excite people about getting out of their cars. right? It's, we don't do a lot to make riding the train a delightful experience. We don't do enough to make riding the bus a, an enjoyable and superior um, experience to driving your car, because it's competition. When you're in your car, you can listen to music you wanna to listen to, you control the climate, you, you know, it's, it's your private time. People say it's their private time. It's a roving locker because you can <laughs> carry crap in the... I mean, seriously, these are all the things that people associate with driving, and we don't think through that and offer that. Um, we at LADOT, we actually coined this term transportation happiness, which is this idea that we need to get back to focusing on the A to B trip and the and the lived experience of the people who are uh, using our system every day, um, and come up with we've come up with a mobility bill of rights um, that we came up with after working with a lot of different um, stakeholder groups, business owners, constituents, uh, mobility providers. There was a card game; it was awesome. Um, so I think the tramway idea is fantastic. I think it is has huge huge potential. To both move a lot of people without relying on cars, to so move them really efficiently, and add delight to the enjoy to their experience of getting around the city. Now, if the the Dodger Stadium tramway only goes from Union Station to Dodger Stadium, it will be a huge missed opportunity to start to put together the spine of a real system. So, I think that where what else could I, it go? Well, it ought, to, it ought to stop in Chinatown at the State Historic Park. It ought to take a turn and maybe head on up to the valley. It ought to, you know, it ought to be this, it ought to be the beginning of a little a little spine, a little system that you could use to connect communities. I mean, if you could go from the valley to Chinatown on a tramway. I'd do it. Right? <laughs> It'd be awesome. Um, or get, you know, if you want to take the train to, to uh, San Diego and you can just take a tram to Union Station and take the train you know that's something that you actually that's an event like that's something you want to do and you with your family with your kids with your parents with the people who visit you from out of town like this is the thing that we do in Los Angeles with people who come to visit from out of town we go and we have amazing food in Chinatown absolutely and then we (laughs) we go to the we go to the State Historic Park which is a gem we go to the Highland Park Brewery across the street and then we take the tramway to Union Station or we jump on a scooter or bike share bike and then we take the train to San Diego I mean Come on! That's right? great.
0: Um, Are you sure you're not the director of tourism here I LA? know,
1: right? I know. Er- er- no, Ern- Ernest Wooden is doing an amazing job at that. I could never compete with his, his uh, gravitas wisdom and hospitality. But I do think that um, the tunnel, however, is another beast completely. Maybe that's a
0: whole other topic for a whole other time.
1: <laughs> well, I'll just say this about the tunnel. The tunnel does none of those things, right? The tunnel doesn't move people more, more people more efficiently. It still relies on people in their individually owned cars. The tunnel does not propose any kind of um, demand management, uh, you know, pricing or otherwise. The tunnel does not have a feasible plan for how to get people from the surface to the tunnels And the tunnel also does not have a feasible plan about how to overcome the fundamental challenge of a high capacity car system, the freeways, uh, which is that um, if you want to go from, if you want to go from A to C and you want to skip B, you have to have redundancy in a system, right? And so that you have to be able to, because the person in front of you wants to go from A to B. And so, so that you don't have to stop, you need to be able to go around them now multiply that by an infinite number of destinations that people want to go to and imagine how many tunnels you'd need to create that kind of redundancy there's this system called personal rapid transit which is uh, the f the the federal transit administration has put a moratorium on funding there's one system in morgantown west virginia uh, and nobody's ever built another one effectively because of these inherent problems with um and so So what you'll get then is just a duplicate of what we see on a freeway system where people are willing to sit on an on-ramp for an uh, indefinite amount of time to get onto the system. So imagine that, you know, people waiting to get on these elevators um, and it's not feasible to construct the number of tunnels you would need. Furthermore, you know, a lot has been made about the cost of the tunnel and that may be so there may be some innovations there in terms of actual tunneling but the tunnel the a very small tunnel boring machine created that tunnel and it's a self-reported cost there's really no transparency about how much did it really cost and furthermore you'd never that could never function as an actual tunnel for humans because for fire life safety reasons It would need to be much larger so that people could evacuate if there's a fire in the tunnel or that a firefighter could get down there and as soon as you start to make the tunnel big and create the stations well now you're back and you've created you know an infinite number of tunnels i think that um, uh, elon musk said that he doesn't believe in induced demand he thinks it's a red herring and so uh, the way he's going to resolve it is just to build an, an an infinite number of tunnels until he meets the demand Again, it's like so. How many tunnels are we really talking about now? And let's be serious. Now, could it work as a, a, a goods movement system? Yes, potentially. And you know, we to bring us full circle back to the '84 Olympics. A lot of people think that the '84 Olympics, you know, we didn't have any traffic because of all the transportation demand management and all of that. Sure, played a role. But Jen Giuliano. Um, Mm -hmm. METrans has has done a really good job educating me that it was actually the fact that freight and goods delivery was almost exclusively done in the the middle of the night. Mm -hmm. That was the biggest contributor to the reduction in congestion that people experienced that was temporary. And so if we could take all of those, all that goods movement that's happening on the surface and put it into a tunnel, if congestion is your goal, congestion management is your goal, then that might be a more meaningful path. However, if jobs are your goal and good employment is your goal, then it's not as simple as that, right? So the tunnel is is problematic from a, for a bunch of different perspectives. And the main thing that I think is missing is a typical sort of thing that's missing from a debate uh, when we get into conversations with technology, some technology companies, which is, these are not engineering problems. These are political problems, right? Pricing, that's a political problem. Um, taking goods movement and automating it, that's a, that's a political and a labor problem. That's not an engineering problem. Um, and the sort of disdain for technical expertise you know, calling something like Induced Amanda Red Herring it, when it's been proven over and over and over again is a perfect example of why we're going to struggle, continue to struggle, if we can't see a little bit more vulnerability from Silicon Valley and acknowledgement that um, to disrupt a problem, you won't be tainted, your disruption won't be tainted. If you actually do your homework first,
0: so it's almost like the, there's the community of neighborhoods that you've been working with day after day in the in the micro implementation of these localized projects. But as you look at the bigger picture, there's other communities that may not be geographic based, right. but are rather industry based or interest group based, philosophical Ph-philosophical com- based. communities that okay. you have to approach the same way yes, that's right. and, and provide them because you still have people who are naysayers who are resistant to change who think that they have the answer that they experience and that's the only way it can be yes. and that's a, it's a challenge to overcome and it's hard work as you indicated it's
1: hard work and if you don't have two people two sides that are willing to be humble sit down listen then there's a limited there's a limited amount of forward movement you can achieve
0: yeah. Yeah. All right, Salida. we're gonna do our lightning round. Okay. Nine questions, just quick answer, first thing that comes to mind. If you have to pass, you can pass. Uh, who's a leader that has influenced you in your work?
1: Jeanette Sadekhan.
0: Which American city has made the most admirable mobility progress? Seattle. What is your ideal method of transportation for the distant future? Biking. Mm. Uh, what's your LA commuting tip?
1: Oh, take the bus, man. The bus <laughs> is magic.
0: What is your favorite instance of transportation anywhere in the world?
1: Uh, I think riding, I, w- I would say um, taking the, the tramway to Roosevelt Island or riding my bike in Copenhagen.
0: Cool. Uh, what advice would you give 25-year-old you, which isn't that long ago?
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, oh, I would just say take risks, you're on the right path, trust your gut. Nice.
0: What is the best career decision you ever made?
1: I took a risk when I moved to Seattle, I'd been there and I thought I'd bought a house and thought I was going to live there forever and got recruited for a job at the SFMTA uh, and, and even though it was really scary and we had to do a lot of, I had just had a, a second baby, uh, we moved back to the Bay Area.
0: Okay, And what has so far been your proudest professional moment?
1: Oh, I think that when we opened the plaza in, um, in Leimert, uh in front of the Vision Theatre, that was one of the best, the best days, uh, because the, the Festival of Maths was there, the community was there, and you could just see uh, the joy that people had.
0: Cool. Well, thank you, Salita, for joining us today, and all you do for our communities. Thank you. All right. Cool. Thanks for listening to Community Intelligence. And for more information on this and other episodes, visit our website at stratoscope.com. At Stratoscope, we provide community intelligence services to businesses, nonprofits, and government agencies. Let us know how we can help you.